Some of us have had the awesome experience of being with someone when they died. And so, some of us have had the opportunity to witness the dying person's last acts and final words. We tend to put a lot of stock into someone's last utterance, and every once in a while we hear dramatic stories about a word of forgiving grace being spoken to an estranged son, or soaring words of hope as the dying person testifies to seeing Jesus waiting on the other side. Very often, however, the final words are directed to loved ones, to simple yet utterly moving affirmations of love. Of course, when it's the death of God's own son you're talking about, you expect the final words to be ever and only weighty and theologically loaded up with meaning. But today on Groundwork, we will hear a final word from Jesus that looks completely domestic, intimate, familial, but might it also say even more than we think. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And uh, Dave, we are now in program two of a seven-part series, a good thing to reflect on during Lent or uh, often on Good Friday afternoon. They'll take all seven words uh, in a row at sort of long church services. But we're looking at those seven last words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Uh, in the previous program, we looked at uh, what's often considered the first word, Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. Today, we're going to look at one that is found only in John's gospel. This is, uh, we, we mentioned earlier that not all of the seven sayings are in any one gospel. There's, you know, scattered about. This one's only in John 19. Right. And uh, as we consider these seven words, it's more than just a way of sort of following the action of Good Friday and seeing what happened or what Jesus said during the course of basically three hours from noon to three period when mm-hmm. he hung there dying. Uh, maybe a little longer than that. It may have started in the morning already. But uh, what we really see in these words as we put them together is an explanation of what it meant, that what was going on there, the deeper meaning, the spiritual meaning. Mm-hmm. And we saw last week that it is both an example to us, Jesus' forgiveness of his enemies. Mm-hmm. So we ask, has anything worse than that happened to us? Right. That we, we say, oh, I can never forgive that. Yeah. And our hope, he still prays, Father, forgive them. When we so often act ignorantly or wrongly or badly toward other people, you know, our hope is in God's forgiveness uh, right. as the Son asks the Father. Right. And today we're going to look at one again that, as we said in the intro, doesn't look quite, on the surface of it, doesn't look quite that theologically robust, and we'll see why that is. Uh, Again, it's only in John's Gospel, and maybe as we get started, we just remind ourselves, John's Gospel kind of stands apart. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called the synoptic gospels from synopsis in Greek, which means seen together, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar to each other. They follow a similar timeline. There's a lot of overlap. They tell parables, many of the same miracles. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of jive together very well. We think Mark was written first. We think Matthew and Luke probably had access to Mark when they wrote their gospels. We think John was written last and probably knew of all three of the Gospels that had already been written, so he set out to write a very different kind of a Gospel. Absolutely. Uh, John is sometimes called the Gospel from above, uh, the Gospel that takes a God's eye view of Jesus, that shows him clearly, maybe most clearly, as God, that quotes many of his statements where he claimed, I mean, John's the Gospel where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am, using the personal name of God. So there's that strong theologizing of Jesus, the Son of God. 
And uh, and John often even calls a timeout as he goes along. We yeah. have these parentheticals. Oh, by the way, Jesus here was referring to the temple of his body, but they didn't understand. You know, so he's doing that. Uh, right. There are no parables in John, but we do have the I am sayings and big sermons too. I've I've always oh, yeah. liked to point this out when people say, "Yeah, you should just tell stories like Jesus." Well, Jesus in John does some heavy duty preaching. Mm-hmm. So you've got these long discourses like the bread of life in chapter oh, yeah, six. six. Yeah, or the the. Uh, the upper room, 13, yeah. 14, 15, 16, 17. I mean, uh, huge, long discourses, theology of the Holy Spirit. So it's a very heavy-duty theological gospel. And yet, at the beginning and at the end, we get this brief little familial uh, insight. Uh, Mary isn't in this gospel a lot, the mother of Jesus, but she is in the first story, the first big story that gets told in John 2 at a wedding at a place called Cana. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, that's an odd little exchange. Yeah. And he's going to do whatever she tells him. When your mother tells you to do something, you better do it. So he ends up making the wine uh, after all. So it's kind of this uh, intimate little portrait, this little back and forth between Jesus and his mother. Yeah. She kind of fixes Jesus in one of those motherly stares that says, do this. I told you to do this. And so he does. But again, so Mary kind of bookends the gospel because here she is in John 2, and we see this mother-son exchange. And then she's not really mentioned much until you get to John 19. Not at all. She, she yeah. totally drops she's out just gone. of the whole gospel. The, the synoptics do have here and there a vignette yeah. where Mary appears. Yeah. And, and they have, of course, the birth stories, right. uh, a couple of them. But the key thing is, at the end of the gospel, Jesus announces in John chapter 12, now my hour has come. Right. The hour, my hour. So this idea of his hour, the hour of his glorification, the hour of his death has now arrived, and now Mary suddenly reappears, yep. and there she is at the foot of the cross. And it's very, very poignant. You know, uh, this isn't in John's gospel, it's in Luke 2, but the old man Simeon at the temple predicted to Mary when Jesus was, you know, eight days old, that a sword will pierce your soul too, my dear. And indeed, we see that here. Because, you know, I remember the, the movie Terms of Endearment came out years ago. It's about a young mother stricken with cancer. Um, there's a lot of gut-wrenching scenes in the movie, including when the mother says goodbye to her two young boys. And when she dies, just her her husband and her mother are with her. And when she dies, they're both convulsed with grief, but it's the mother who says over and over, there's nothing harder. There's nothing Mm. harder. And indeed, talk to any parent who has lost a child and they'll say there is no grief like the loss of a child because it's so unnatural for the the young one to die before the old one. And so here is Mary now back in the gospel in John 19, watching her baby boy die. Clearly, John says Mary is at the foot of the cross. Several other women as well. None of the male disciples, with one exception, as we'll see. But there's Mary. And again, you you just think, as you said, Scott, of that early prophecy. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I ran across the words of a hymn from the Middle Ages called the Stabat Mater, uh, which became a very popular hymn Hmm. in uh, the Catholic Church. It literally means standing mother. Hmm. But the lyrics go like this, at the cross her station keeping stood the mournful mother weeping close to Jesus to the last. Through her heart his sorrow sharing, all his bitter anguish bearing, 
now at length the sword has passed. So there's that reference. A sword will cut you to the heart. Yep, and indeed it does. So it's very, very, very painful. Yeah, we know Jesus uh, was the divine son of God who always existed, and Mary probably knew that too. Uh, But humanly speaking, this was the only life she'd ever known Jesus to have, and it's a life he took from her when he was conceived in Mary's own womb. So there she is. And of course, you know, what Jesus was doing on the cross, it was cosmic and it's galactic and it's history shattering. It's the most important theological thing uh, that ever happened. But in just a moment, we'll see that Jesus wasn't so heavenly minded as to ignore the things of earth. His own words prove it, and we'll look at that next. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit FamilyFire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community and be encouraged FamilyFire.com. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And Dave, let's uh, get right to the last word of Jesus from the cross. That's the focus of this program. Uh, many of us know this saying well. well. We'll set the context a little bit by reading also the earlier verses, where we read in John 19, beginning at verse 23, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. Now that garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. They said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So there's the word. It's a word sort of Taking care of Ma, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, 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 like you said, it's so human, despite the fact that at this moment, the weight of the sin of the whole world is on Jesus' head. Right. And he is engaged in offering the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, just you cannot, words cannot explain how significant that is. And yet Jesus has time to think about his mother, yeah. who's going to be left alone. Yeah. And it's the age-old question that many of us struggle with, with aging parents, what are we going to do with mom? And uh, Jesus has a a solution here. Yeah. And so, again, as we said in the last segment, a wrenching, wrenching scene for any mother to have to witness. How awful. I mean, it doesn't get worse than this. Jesus is naked, by the way. I mean, uh, artists quite literally cover that up for us. But they've got everything. they got his clothes. they got his underwear. He is hanging naked on the cross, which is further humiliation and also, I would think, a deep embarrassment for any adult uh, person to be in front of their mother uh, naked. And and also some theology going on there when you think about the fact that he took our shame upon us. And you go back to the garden and suddenly 
Adam and Eve realize they're naked they after they sin. I mean, he just, Jesus paid it all, as right. the old hymn says. Yeah. But, of course, the main thing we're looking at here is what you just said, Dave, that uh, Jesus, in the midst of searing physical uh, and spiritual agony, too, still manages to see his mother down there and uh, wants her to be taken care of. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, in the last segment here, a little bit about kind of the implication of this saying for for also us. But first, we should just maybe note um, that it's the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved to whom he says this. And who is that? And that's that's sort of a a quirk of John's gospel. That's a great point. We think he's referring to himself, but it's always just a the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, didn't he love them all? There's tons of ink been spilled on mm-hmm. that question. Who is yes. the beloved disciple? And traditionally, it's John, uh, the brother of James, one of the sons of Zebedee, and the the writer of the gospel that right. we, we've been calling John. And why he refers to himself this way, hard to say, but there was apparently a special relationship Even though Jesus did love all the disciples, we know that there was an inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And even in that inner circle, John and Peter almost had a kind of friendly rivalry going for who was closest to Jesus. That's such a funny aspect of John because whenever it's just Peter and John in John's gospel, there's always a little competition and John always comes out on top. It's like when they race to the grave, John outruns Peter. He gets there first. You know, the beloved disciple gets there first. And then in the very last chapter, Jesus restores Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Good. Peter's restored. And then Peter sees the beloved disciple and says, well, what about that guy? Uh, What about him? You know, and Jesus said, don't worry about him. You just worry about yourself. So there's kind of a funny rivalry there. But indeed, as you said, we do think the beloved disciple um, refers to himself that way. Who knows why? Maybe a closer family member. Maybe they did have some special bond. We don't know. But Well, you notice, too, that John says Jesus' mother and his mother's sister were standing there. Right. And there is a scholarly book uh, that I've read and I found very interesting that suggests that Jesus' mother's sister was, in fact, John's mother, mm. that this was a family deal and John was Jesus' cousin. And if you think about the fact that none of Jesus' brothers were believers at this point, right. they had rejected him. Uh, later, after the resurrection, they would come to believe. Right. But, they thought he was crazy. So there's a certain sense in Jesus entrusting his mother Mary to John's care, who was a disciple, because Mary was a disciple as well. Right. And so he he, he entrusts his mother uh, to John and said, you know, take care. It's it's kind of almost, there's only nine words in the original Greek here, uh, and the sayings of Jesus tend to get a little shorter as his death draws near, which makes sense. You can hardly breathe on the cross. So it's just sort of like, you know, you know, woman, son, son, mother, you know, yeah. uh, it's just kind of rasping it out. Um, but it, but it's a very, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, again, the Bible commentator said that, you know, Jesus is preaching sermons from the cross in these words. And in this particular saying, Jesus does two things at once. One, he fulfills the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, right? He's a, he's a son of God, so he fulfills the law. So he's honoring his mother. But at the same time, Bruner points out, he's creating a new nuclear family based on faith, a new family of God where water is thicker than blood. The water of baptism is going to be thicker than blood. And so two things are going on at once, sort of the traditional honoring of your parents, as the fifth commandment tells us we must do, but also creating this new family, which is going to be the family of God, the church, the body of God, the body of Christ on earth. Well, and then go back and connect it to the first story of Mary in the Gospel of John. 
right. and the, the turning water into wine at Cana, and Mary's key phrase to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mm-hmm. That's the definition of a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is one who does whatever he tells, whatever he commands. And that becomes the new family relationship right. of the family of God. Whose job it will be to continue the witness. That's a yeah. big key theme in John that he's writing this whole gospel so that you will believe. You know, Jesus is creating a kind of a new family unit who will be the, the key witness to the truth of his being the Messiah. Right. So there's a lot more going on here than just uh, what are we going to do about Ma. And it's a beautiful thing that Jesus does. It's amazing that he thinks about it here at this moment, at this time of agony and suffering. But it's uh, more significant that he's creating the kind of family that anyone can belong to. Anyone can be brought in and made part of this, uh, as you say, the family of water, right. not of blood. Right. And, uh, and yet, having said that, we want to uh, come back again to this wonderful act of love from Jesus toward his mother. And we'll conclude with that in just a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and you're listening to Groundwork and this second program in our Seven Last Words from the Cross series. And today we're looking at the saying where Jesus says, woman, your son, son, your mother, where Jesus is commending to the care of his disciple, John, the beloved disciple, as we were just saying, care for uh, his mother. You know, and we said earlier in the first segment, Dave, that John is such a theological gospel. It gives us Jesus from above. In fact, I always like Dale Bruner's way of characterizing the four gospels. He said, Mark is Jesus from below, looking at the very human nature of Jesus. John is the gospel from above, very theological. Luke is a the study of— The divine nature right, especially yeah. comes out. Yeah. Luke is a study of Jesus' hands, like a Rembrandt painting the hands of a healer. Matthew gives you Jesus in profile as we look at his head and really focus on his his teachings and so forth. So John's the, the most theological, the most overtly theological of the gospels, and yet here at the end we get this very lovely human moment between uh, mother and son. Right. Maybe at this point we should say a little bit about the sort of ambiguous way in which you put the Gospels together. They show Jesus' relationship with his blood family. Mm-hmm. Of course, the blood belonged to Mary. He inherited his human nature from her. His blood ties to his siblings through her. But there are several incidents in the course of the Gospels where Jesus seems to distance himself oh, from Oh, very that. much, yeah. You know, he's told one at one time that uh, his family's outside asking for him, and he, he looks at the crowd who are listening, and he says, these are my brothers and sisters, right, right. Uh, the ones who hear me and listen to my teaching. And then his family, when they hear that he had said that, they said he's out of his mind. He's, he's off his rocker. So, you know, he seems to kind of write them off at times. Uh, they seem, they to, seem write to write him yeah. off at times. But here we're shown again— we're brought back and we're rooted still in this wonderful relationship of fathers or 
mother-son. Yeah, and you know, it's also the case that the New Testament makes clear that water is thicker than blood, and if your earthly biological family gets in the way of the faith, as sometimes happens in the world yet today, where people will threaten their own children uh, if they turn to become Christian, well, then you've got to stick with the faith family above all. That's true. Uh, But all things being equal, this tender moment between Jesus and Mary also shows that there's nothing wrong with absolutely being fiercely committed to and loving toward a spouse, uh, your parents, your children, your siblings, your cousins. That's a deep part of what it means to be a follower of God, too. Yeah. Yeah, and there, you know, it's one of the marks of a cult, I would say, uh, that insists that you cut all ties, all natural ties with your family, with your relatives, for no good reason. That's just sick, and that's not what the gospel teaches. Uh, so we, as followers of Jesus, are right to love our families, to care for them, to provide for them, provide for our children, provide certainly for our aged parents, mm-hmm. uh, as Jesus does here. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, nothing wrong with it, as no. you say. And you know, Dave, all of these seven words, and we could say this on each of the seven programs in this series, but all of these words from the cross are like a distillation, uh, a boiled down version, a condensed version of everything Jesus had been in his life. What we hear from the cross is just a super magnified version of everything that Jesus had been all along. And And in addition to just his natural love for his mother in this particular saying, another thing I think we want to say that this shows in a magnified way was Jesus' lifelong ability to spy the lonely, the marginalized, the vulnerable. He always had such good spiritual eyesight and was always able to pick out of the person who most needed his love and his forgiveness. And it was very often the people that everybody else overlooked. Well, again, just go back to the record, John's description of those people standing at the foot of the cross, mostly women, Mm -hmm. and throughout the course of his ministry, it was women who really hung in there, and many of them helped him, uh, provided for the needs of the disciples. So there's the beloved disciple, there's Mary, his mother, there's her sister, and Mary Magdalene, another one of those Mm -hmm. outsiders. Right a woman from whom he had delivered from bondage to the demonic. So, yeah, Jesus, even at this moment, maybe especially at this moment, as he's bleeding for the sins of the world, still uh, has eyes for the lonely, the lost, the outcast, the outsider. You know, the playwright Arthur Miller was briefly married to the actress Marilyn Monroe. And in uh, Miller's memoirs, he said, you know, Marilyn in her life knew the experience of being an orphan. And he said it was uncanny. No matter where they went, even in very crowded rooms, she could always spy the other orphan in the room. I mean, it was like there was something in their eyes that they would connect. And, you know, Jesus was in a way that way. I mean, in John 1, we are told that Jesus became the ultimate stranger in our midst. He was in the world, and the world knew him not. Yeah. Uh, they, nobody he came, accepted him. He came him. to his own people, and his own people rejected they knew him. him. Not. So Jesus was an orphan. Jesus was the alien within our gates, the ultimate stranger among us. No wonder he had such an affinity for others who, who were vulnerable, marginalized. You know, that's good news for us today, because— Often, any number of us, uh, we're Christians and all, but sometimes we feel lonely, we feel overlooked, we feel like nobody cares if I live or die, nobody cares what I do on my job five days a week. We feel like nobody sees us, we're invisible. I'm invisible, you'll see, you hear people say that. Well, 
what this word from the cross says is that with Jesus, you're never invisible. He will always see you in your loneliness, in your vulnerability. You're not invisible to him. You never will be. That's just who he is. So it seems on the surface uh, with this word that we just have a kind of a very practical, almost matter-of-fact uh, way of Jesus dealing with the problem, a concern for his mother. Uh, he commends her to John, who was perhaps his cousin. Uh, John takes her in, and, and we read that from that moment on, she joined him, she went to live with him. But on a much deeper level, it speaks volumes, not just of our natural human relationships and our, our need to love our family, but of the way God loves us. God sees us, God knows us. He reaches out to us in love. That's the gospel. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you for joining our Groundwork Conversation. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and we always like to know how we can help you to dig deeper into the scriptures. We have a website, groundworkonline.com. You can visit it and uh, suggest topics and passages for future Groundwork programs. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob.